Hello and welcome to Deep North. We're here today with Eisen Review editor Greta Einarsdottir on her piece, Cream of the Crop, a look at daily life in the West Fjords. Row after row of steep but flat-topped mountains interspersed with deep fjords. There's barely enough land in between to make up a coastline, let alone farmland. But on the green patches between the cliffs and the waves, there are still more than a handful of farms dotting the landscape. The Westfjords have always been isolated, but after World War II, when the rest of Iceland experienced a period of sped-up industrialization, the Westfjords were left behind. Once thriving communities were slowly drained of life when the young people moved south, and a series of economic setbacks made life difficult for the ones that remained. New generations still find ways of making it work. 6.40 a.m. Mikjall Agnar Thorsson Davidsen's alarm goes off. It's not light yet in the Westfjords, but for farmers this isn't unusual. Mickey isn't getting up to milk the cows or feed the sheep, but to get his stepdaughter ready for school. At precisely 7.15, the school bus arrives. Rødstaler Farm is its first stop on the way to bring the preschool and elementary school its kids to get their education in Patreksfjörður, the town on the other side of the mountains. Iris celebrated her 10th birthday the day before. She's still waiting on her present, set to arrive any day now by mail from Reykjavik. The post arrives twice a week, but the present is yet to turn up. Mikki and Iris are up, but her mother, Svanhildur, is still sleeping, and so is six-month-old Ásdey Kolbrún. An online sleep specialist, whose aid her parents had requested, insists that Ásdey be woken up. With bated breath, her parents comply, and Ásdey rewards them with a smile. They have a whole day to brace themselves for the bedtime-inspired screaming set to happen later. Svanhildur and Mikki met in 2019 in Reykjavik. Mikki had lived in Norway for a few years before that, in the same region as the first Norse settler to intentionally sail to Iceland, Raven Floki. Unlike Floki, however, he'd never even been to the Westfjords. A couple of years later, and he's building himself a house there. The couple bought a prefab house and were hoping to have it ready last summer. Enter Ásti. Svanhildur got pregnant, delaying their plans for a while. They did manage to get the walls up, so all that remains is indoor work. While Mikki is new to the area, Svanhildur is born and bred. She grew up in Rødstaler with her parents and two brothers, moving away like so many of the local youth to go to school and not planning on moving back. We'd still visit every chance we got, making notes. Summer or winter. I could drive this road with my eyes closed and know it so well. Mikki's father-in-law drives the milk tanker. He's been doing it for decades. He's happy to have some help. Mikki's taking half the shifts lately. Completely unrelated, his father-in-law is now spending a couple of weeks in the Canary Islands. Alongside the milk truck gig, Svanhildur's parents run the farm, taking care of their cattle and sheep. 
They also dabble in tourism, running a guesthouse and campsite. Someone on the next farm over used to take half the shifts on the milk tanker. When he quit, there was an opening for Mickey. We spent a lot of time here, but I needed something more to do than just helping out at the farm. Mickey and Svanhildur moved west in the spring of 2021, during the lambing season. Despite being raised in a rural area, Mickey says it takes a few years to get to know the ins and outs of dairy farming in the Westfjords. He's from the south. 8.40 a.m. Just before 9, Mickey starts the truck. Twice a week, he collects the milk from the farms along the coast of Breiðafjörður and takes them all the way up to Isafjörður. He starts at the most remote farm in his area, Lampavat. To get there, he drives two mountain roads, first over Kleivaheiði Heath, under the careful watch of Kleivabúin, a primitive-looking statue created from excess stone by road workers in the 1940s. In the winter, the Kleivaheiði road can be treacherous, even though it's cleared once a day to make sure traffic can flow to and from Patricksfjörður. The second road takes you to the remote farming community of Rauðasandur, and it's more than treacherous. It's a long and winding gravel road, steep and rough, zigzagging up and down sharp cliffs. In summer, the view over the russet sand that gives the region its name is breathtaking. In winter, with strong winds and ice on the road, it can also take your breath away for all the wrong reasons. The road to Rauðasandur is among the most challenging in the region, but there are others that can still be plenty bad when the winter sets in. The roads have been slowly improving for the past couple of decades. There are fewer gravel roads, more bridges and shorter routes between towns. But progress is slow. Roads are how kids get to school and how food gets to farms how products get from factories and how tourists get to guesthouses, and how sick people, pregnant people, and people who have had accidents get to hospitals. It's still dark when Mickey takes off, and there aren't many other cars on the road. A tiny sliver of light comes from the east. It's mid-November, but it's still 8 degrees out, and not a snowflake in sight, unusual for this time of year. On the road across Dinjandisheide, try saying that five times fast while trying to keep a truck on an icy road, Mickey regales me with stories of thick layers of ice on the road, making it hopeless to break, and how they could sometimes drive on the edge of the road to keep safe. He also tells me of piles of snow higher than the top of the truck, and how he once had to put chains on the wheels of the truck four times in one day to pass safely over mountain roads. Putting the chains on takes half an hour out in the cold, and he has to get them off again as soon as he gets down. He mentioned tourists scared shitless who either won't budget to make room for the truck on the road or give so much way that they almost drive off the road. He's seen it all. Despite all his adventures crossing the iconic Westfjord Mountains, his least favorite stretch of road is driving through the long tunnel connecting the southern and the northern westwards. Driving through the calm dark of the tunnels can make you drowsy. 
10 a.m. It takes us less than an hour to get to Rauðasandur, but in that time, Mikis told me who's who in every farm along the way and who will greet us when we arrive. As promised, Thorsteinn og Lampavatni meets us in the milk house. As Mikki tests the quality of the milk before transferring it to the tank, Thorsteinn explains the watercolor drawing of the milking equipment with directions in English. They have foreign workers at the farm, and one of them left the work of art to explain things to the next arrivals. As I admire the picture, Thorsted drags me into the cowshed, where two further paintings adorn the steel doors keeping the cows away from the winter hay in the barn. Lampavat may be isolated at the end of the road, nothing ahead but the North Atlantic, but there's always people attracted to exactly that. We don't dawdle too long at Lampavat. It's the only dairy farm left in the area, so it's already out of the way. The milk tanker is its lifeline, the bi-weekly visit from Mickey or his father-in-law a prerequisite for people living there. In Bardastrand, the farms are closer. The next stop is Breiðalækur, where Elin and Christian are outside working on the greenhouse. Christian is the third generation of farmers at Breiðalækur, a relatively young farm built in the mid-20th century. Despite only being a few decades old, the farm consists of several buildings, and Christian, a carpenter by trade, has done his part adding to it. There's the old farmhouse, the new farmhouse sporting a two-year-old annex adding a new apartment for Elin and him. Then there's the new dairy barn and the old dairy barn, currently in the process of being converted into a greenhouse. The roof needed fixing, Elin told me. So we removed it to make a new one that lets the sun in. Then there's the workshop, which Elin has used to tan sheepskin, a garage for the farm equipment and their boat in the winter, and the latest addition under construction, a building to house their new ice cream making machinery. Their youngest isn't old enough for school, but their six-year-old takes the bus to Patricksfjörður in the morning to go to school. When Elin moved to the farm ten years ago, there was only one school-aged kid left in the region, so they closed the local elementary school. Now, there are 14 children below the age of 16, but the school is yet to reopen. Haye is the next farm over, and just like Mickey predicted, there's no one to greet us in the milk house. According to Mickey, the farmers have decided to stop dairy production when they turn 60, but continue to live on the farm. The milk in the tank is just half of what it once was. They're gradually downsizing. Kvammur is next, the largest dairy farm in the area, and Mickey pumps as much milk in his tanker as he did in the first three combined. There's no one there to greet us. 12.30pm We drive up to Rødstalur again. Mickey's family and the in-laws produce dairy, gather it from the surrounding farms, transported to the dairy in Isafjörður, and drive the finished product back to the area. The dogs greet us with a cheerful bark, and Mickey inquires about his daughter's sleep schedule. All is according to plan. There are three dogs in total. The largest one is an Australian sheepdog who moves like an octogenarian after he broke his leg last fall.
Pjakkur is a gregarious mutt, constantly seeking attention and willing to place his head in the lap of a perfect stranger in the hope of a scratch behind the ears. The third is more cautious, the namesake of Sveitn Skotti, the son of Iceland's most famous serial killer, Axlarbjörn. Sveitn took after his father and was finally hanged in the cliffs jutting out into the sea below the farm. This was centuries ago, but I'm still keeping my eye on the dog. A quick cup of coffee and we're off again. This time we're taking the milk to Isafjörður. In Vassfjörður, the next town over, we stop and Mickey picks up a styrofoam box that's waiting for his arrival. It's Arctic char from the fish farm in Vassfjörður to be delivered to the fishmonger in Isafjörður. Out here, everyone does their part. The tanker carries 5,950 liters of milk on its way to Arna Creamery in Polungarvik. Another milk tanker covers the northern parts of the Westfjords, bringing in a similar amount twice a week. That's still not enough, and Arna has to buy milk from other parts of the country as well. 3 p.m. We arrive in Isafjörður. There is ongoing roadwork in Dinjandisheide. The road has already gotten a lot better, but there's more to come. The tunnel by Dýrafjörður has shortened the drive by a lot, and on an unusually warm fall day without snow, we don't run into any issues. By now, it's even better to take this road in snow during the winter, rather than on a sunny day in the summer. Ever since the tunnel opened, the tourist traffic has increased a lot, and there are a lot of people on the road that don't have any experience driving Icelandic country roads. Make is working, so we can't pick up hitchhikers. There aren't that many on the way. But last year, he took pity on a cyclist on the way up Dinjandisheide during a storm and drove them to safety. Everyone does their part. MS Iceland Dairies has an outpost in Isafjörður, and Mickey stops there for a quality control check on the milk. Everything is as it should be, so we continue out to Bolungarvik, where the milk is pumped into Arna's tankards to become butter, cream, skir or cheese. On the way back, we drop the styrofoam box of char to the fishmonger, and Mickey gets a bag of dried fish as a thank you. I love the stuff, but I can't eat it at home, as the wife has a fish allergy. The day is not done yet. The milk tanker has to be thoroughly cleaned in an hour-long process. We get dinner. Mickey is pretty set in his ways, but he's willing to try a kebab in the recently opened kebab shop in an Isafjörður shopping complex. Before we take off, another truck drives up to the tanker, a delivery from Reykjavík. Pallet after pallet of milk, butter, cheese, yogurt, skir and other dairy products is transferred to Mickey's car for the people back home. He'll deliver the goods tomorrow. We stop by the grocery store. On the way back, it's dark again. The floodlights on the top of the car come in handy. I even see a field mouse crossing the road. I didn't ask why. It's half past eight when we get back to Rødstalur. We go straight to the barn where Svankvit is feeding the cows. Auste is already sleeping. Well, thank you for that, Greta. 
So what kind of got you interested in writing this piece? Well, I actually knew a little about the community because Elin, who's mentioned in the article, uh, is a friend of mine from school. Um, but I'd been fascinating with the Westfjords, especially the southern uh, part of it, for a while. Um, I have some family from there, and it's just such an interesting part of Iceland. It's this remote area with all this history, a uh, beautiful landscape, but for a long time... Uh, there just weren't the economic prospects to support um, a lot of industry there. And there, you you would always hear stories of, you know, in the 90s you'd hear a lot of stories about companies failing, people having to move out, the last of the boats leaving the harbor, and like sad stories of, of small towns reducing even greater size. But now we're seeing the slow but like a start of people returning to the area with new ideas, with new ways of life, and with new um, industries. And I think that's fascinating. So one of the things that's uh, really interesting to me uh, in this little portrait of daily life in the Westwards is just how dependent uh, these communities can be on some services. You know, so for instance... The milkman, the milk delivery truck here, uh, you know, this is really uh, a lifeline for this community, right? Yes, it is. Um, I mean, in such a small community, every single person is a much bigger percentage of the whole than in a larger cities. So you rely on your neighbors, you rely on the people around you. Um, but the milk tanker driver specifically is for all the dairy farms in the area. And there are a lot of dairy farms in the area because um, it may be a little convoluted to get into, but there was like a sheep disease in the 50s or 60s. So a lot of the farms there turned to dairy farming instead of um, sheep farming. So, it, and if the milk tanker wouldn't come and collect the milk, their the, you know, support for this way of life would dwindle away. Like um, they needed to... Uh, continue living there and uh, and then in addition to just the basic uh, need for industry in the area he also provides um, you know he drops things off he's a member of the community um, tells stories you know connects the community really and where in your mind um is this kind of Icelandic rural renaissance coming from? Is it, um, you know, more just a desire on young people's behalf to kind of, you know, uh, rediscover a simpler way of life? Or are there increasingly more economic opportunities in rural Iceland now? I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, I actually think it's a global trend right now that a lot of people are moving uh, away from the big cities and into uh, more rural communities or back to their hometown. Or, But in Iceland specifically, I mean, the housing market in Reykjavik is getting very expensive. And while it is still a lot cheaper to live, to buy housing in the uh, rural communities, it's still uh, getting more expensive every day because people are, uh, people want them. <laughs> there's, there's demand. Um, 
Yeah, and after the banking collapse in 2008, there was a revival in the sort of appreciation of a tr- more traditional way of life. People started, you know, making slaughter the Icelandic sausages uh, in in an increased capacity. More people started knitting. There's this sort of um, appreciation for um, traditions that yeah. might have something to do with it as well. Mm. Yeah. But mostly I think it's just that collectively we see it as a feasible option. Um, and that has to do with economic prospects, I suspect. So something that maybe a lot of visitors to the West Fjords can appreciate are these very dramatic roads. Um, and on the one hand, uh, these roads are obviously the kind of lifeline of these communities to the outside world. Um, and yet, you know, there are also these very just dramatic images of these kind of uh, cliffside uh, roads and all these things. So, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about just the importance of transportation in a remote rem- in a remote part of Iceland like this. Yes, uh, the roads are indeed uh, scary, <laughs> especially in winter. And like, I wouldn't really want to have my kid in a school bus, you know, driving some of these like. Uh, winding mountain roads when when they get icy and, and awful. But um, yeah, the thing about the, the Westfjords is the landscape. It's so beautiful, but it's very dramatic. There are these steep mountainsides, um, deep fjords, and it's kind of hard to get like a just like straight line, a road in a straight line. <laughs> um, and that's what the people of the Westfjords have been uh calling for like road improvements and they have been doing it i mean i remember going there as a kid in the 90s and just throwing up the whole way because the roads were awful (laughs) (laughs) um and they have uh made a lot of improvements um but you need to be able to get if you're going to make a factory of some kind in westfield you need to be able to get your product out you need to be able if you want to have tourism you want to make it make people able to drive there Mm. um if you want to, uh, you know, live somewhere, you need to know that you can get to a hospital in time if you if you get sick or or if something happens. So they're really vital to the community, um, and though they have been improving slowly, they haven't been improving quickly enough. And it's one of these things that um, if the uh, Resettlement of the Westfjords, if we go for a bit of an over-dramatization, um, is to uh, be successful. Um, this is something that needs to be uh, fixed. So you've kind of painted this picture of the Westfjords as um, this kind of new frontier, almost. Um, what was maybe just something kind of small that you took away from it, though? Uh, the thing about life in the Westfjords is that you need to be uh, resilient and you need to uh, be able to think of new ways to do stuff that is, you know, have to do differently than in the city. But you have all this potential. Uh, you have all this land where you can, um, you know, build new buildings. Um, like Ellen and Christian, they're building a house to house their uh, new creamery. Um, they're changing an old barn into a greenhouse where they'll be growing uh, their own vegetables. And 
at this point, they basically don't have to go to a grocery store anymore. They're uh, growing it all on the farm. Um, and like, if you have an idea or something you want to do, um, and the skills to do it, <laughs> you can get it done. Um, but I think most important is that uh, sense of community and the people who live there, they help each other. You get stuff done with the help of the people from the next farm over. Mm, yep. Well, thank you for that, Greta. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.